When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey there. Ever dream of making your own podcast? Let me tell you a little bit about Anchor, the easiest way to make a podcast. First, it's free. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to Why Are You Like This, a podcast about defining out who we are and why we do the things we do. I'm your host, Ryan Andrews, and I am super duper excited to introduce you to today's guest. Our guest is a true gentleman. He is an activist, a friend to all, a West Wing super fan, and one of the few unproblematic straights. He's my fave forename, Mr. Carl Thomas Kyle Glenn. See, <laughs> you can't introduce me as an unproblematic straight. I have to surprise people with that. Well, if I don't lead with it, I don't know if they'll pick up on it. Or or they'll just turn it off. I mean, yeah. that's what people did with my podcast when I had it. They just were like, oh, you're straight? Done. Ooh. Which I get. I'm, I understand. You know? Yeah, and that's what fair. Makes you, that's what makes you less problematic than others, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. How you been doing, buddy? I'm good. I am at the end of a work day. I am working from home through our little panorama. Um, and, you know, same old, same old. Uh, my wife, Kelly, and I moved into a new apartment um, in August. And uh, it, it has been really nice. It's uh, a two-bedroom, which is great, because uh, she is working from home indefinitely. I'll at some point go back to the office, but it gives her a an office to have. So I am currently set up in the bedroom in the corner uh, where I belong. And <laughs> with my rattly uh, heat that you might be able to hear. So, you know, just trucking away. You know, I recently, I'm sure... Most people saw this recently, but on the Twitter that the radiators are the way they are to prevent plague. What does that mean? 
it's why they're like so hot and loud it's it scares the plague away i guess it was like in response to the spanish flu somebody's gonna fact check this and be like this man is lying uh no i mean i i i believe it in the middle of the night it starts banging and the the spanish flu goes ah and runs off and runs and that's that's how you get rid of disease yeah you just you know drink some bleach shine some bright lights and run your radiator on high Oh, God. We have started off great with just facts on facts on facts. This is a factual podcast. Absolutely. Based in science. Yeah. And uh, true storytelling. Exactly. <laughs> so, Carl, let's let's go back. Let's go back to the beginning. Mm. So you grew up in Tennessee. So this is actually a little complicated. Um, I was born so my dad always worked for universities growing up. So we would always move around when he got a new job. And so uh, I was born in Florence, Alabama. At two years old, moved to Springfield, Missouri. Lived in Springfield from when I was two until right after first grade. Then we moved to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is where I claim because I was there the longest of my childhood. And I was there from second grade through high school. At the end of high school, I went to college back in Springfield, Missouri, at Missouri State University, and my parents moved to a different town in Alabama. So though I am from Tennessee, I, at this point, have very little connection there. So it's all over the place. You got to see the middle of the country a lot. Yes, yes. I have been all over. I have grandparents that live in Texas. Uh, my mom's parents used to live in Georgia, uh, family in Birmingham, Alabama. Now I have a sister in Arizona, you know, just literally across the U.S. Just little bits of bits of you everywhere. Yeah, yeah, which is a little stressful to think about little bits of me being everywhere, but <laughs> only if I, I meet the right man, you know? Absolutely. Was moving around hard for you or were you like always easy to just kind of hop into new worlds yeah you know i i'm a virgo so not easy to hop into new worlds moving to from missouri to tennessee was really hard i remember just like crying all the time asking when we could go home and going to church and crying through sunday school and getting my dad out of class and he'd have to walk around with me in the parking lot until I calmed down. And that was tough. And, and then, you know, while I was in Tennessee, I actually went to a different school every like two to four years. Oh, Just wow. like that's how it ended up. I went two years at my first elementary school, three years at the next, two years in middle school, four years in high school. So by the time I got from high school to go to college, then it was you know, I was like, oh, I'm leaving again. You know, like it became something I knew how to do. But in like looking back, I don't think that I ever really handled it well. But I, but I guess, you know, I kind of got used to it. So we moved from Rhode Island to Oregon when I was four or five. And then I spent the rest of my childhood in the same spot. So when I was gearing up to go to college, I did not um, handle that well <laughs> yeah because you also went to college a long way away yeah you know when you're applying to schools um and you're dreaming of getting out of the city that you live in 
I didn't honestly recognize how far Illinois is from Oregon until maybe like my junior year, which was the first time I had to look at a map because I got a theater degree. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I went to college like it was like eight and a half hours away from where my parents were. So it was far enough that I only came home when I had a long break. Um, but I could at least drive. Like, I can't imagine being, you know, you would have been like a 30, 40 hour car ride if you had tried to do it. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting choice. Did you just like, uh, stay by yourself in the dorms all holidays and just like cause mischief? Uh, a lot of them. My freshman year, I went home. Um, I always went home for the winter break because colleges decide to just stop for a month. But anything that was like three days here or four days there, I definitely stayed on campus. And then you develop your um, your break friends. Yeah, all the other loners. Yeah. It's like the Island of Misfit Toys. That you're like best friends with for four days. And then you're like, oh, yeah, bye. So you are the youngest. Mm-hmm. I'm the baby. With two older sisters. Yes. And uh, the, I would say Southern upbringing. Would you agree? Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, even... People who are from Springfield, Missouri, think that they're Southern. They're not. I, it's funny. I am a Southern elitist. Uh, I get, put, give the South a, a hard time when I need to. I'm a strong, uh, I can't think of the word. Words are tough. But I, you know, put up a fight against the South and yet also think it's better than anywhere else. So, Well, I, talk, I talked about this a little bit with another guest, but I just, there are some things from Southern upbringings that I really respect just the, like, you just know the difference when you're in like a Southern mom's house. Yeah. You always have a beverage offered to you immediately. Yes. Everyone's always Mr. and Mrs. Mm-hmm. There's definitely several questions about how hungry yes. you are. The temperature you have to check, make sure that's good too. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because the South is, is interesting because people are very concerned with their guest and with other people and with the way that they show up in their community, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, that line kind of stops to an extent at the end of their race, you know, like that's, that's a big thing. And so, you know, I, I was lucky enough to grow up with parents that were pretty open-minded, um, but that welcomeness doesn't only goes out to other nice white kids, you know, like if, if your your friends, parents like you, because you're also a nice young uh, white boy who also, you know, says, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am kind of stuff, that kindness, there is a stopping line to it. And some of the most welcome and warm and safe places I've ever been are in the South, definitely more so the more diverse of the community you make in the South, the more welcoming it feels because they understand what it's like to be a little bit of an outcast. Um, But, you know, it's a real thing that's also slightly a misconception. It's weird. Do you think it that the niceties come from even a little bit of a place of like, I'm going to be nice to this guest in my house so they go out into the world and tell people that I'm nice to guests in my house? Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's a... I think... I think that is a big reason for why it started. I don't think that is what every person, that's how every person sees it, right? Like, 
my mom is the hostess with the mostest. She is the sweetest, kindest woman. And that is not her motive. But the reason it got passed to her through generations is because status in the South is important and the way that people view you is important, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, I don't want to sit here by any means and say everybody's just doing it so that they look good. But the reason that that societal currency exists is for that reason. And do you think that carries over into, like, I know that you spent a lot of your uh, youth and growing up times pretty deeply involved in a, in the church. Do you think that plays into it as well? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think, <laughs> I think that uh, the church is another like social currency. You know, for me, when I was in high school, everyone on their MySpace profile had a Bible verse. Okay. Right. You know, like everybody could quote a couple verses of the Bible and they went to church every Sunday. And that wasn't necessarily because it made them feel good or because they really believed it so much, but it's because that's what everybody else did. I think what it is, is that like church is another thing that people judge your social status on. And so once everyone is going to church, being a good Christian means that you are good to your guests, that you're nice, that you, you know, hit all these markers. So I, I think that they're all kind of tied together. Just a lot of Reliant K. Um, some Switchfoot, you know, some Mercy Me. Oh, yeah. Switchfoot kind of tricked us all. Yeah, well, Switchfoot was was like Creed, you know? It was that like, oh, we're just like a, a rock band, but we were meant to live for so much more, you know? Like when you just like really think about it. And you're like, yeah, we were. We were, oh my gosh. Um, were you doing a lot of theater as a kid? Yes. Yes and no. I did every school play from, you know, kindergarten through high school, basically. I, I was, I started off as the big bad wolf in the three piggy opera. Um, (laughs) oh yeah. Great name. Um, Uh and then, you know, was in the show all the time, but it wasn't really until, uh, I was like 16 that I decided that it could, or that I learned and realized that it could be like more of a profession and more of something that I could do to make money and as a career than just like, oh, I am good at this, so I like it. Was there like a show that you saw that did that or a show you were in where you were like, oh yeah, this is it? So it was actually a um, kind of a camp. In Tennessee, they have this thing called Governor's School. And they have like 10 different governor schools that serve as like six to eight week summer camps that are located at colleges across the state. And they have a governor school for the humanities, governor school for the sciences, all these different things. And they had governor school for the arts. And so, you know, me and my 2.9 GPA knew that I wasn't getting into governor school for the sciences. <laughs> uh, and so I applied for governor school for the arts, um, got in as a sophomore, which, uh, was not so common. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> and then it was that summer that I realized, you know, that I remember specifically our professor, um, saying to us, you know, if 
you can do anything else as a profession, go do it and be happy doing it. Like if you can be a doctor, if you can be an engineer, go do that. And I will be so happy that you did that. But if the only thing that you can see in life that will make you happy is performing, then you have to go for it and you have to go for it whole hog. You know, you have to put your head down and, and do it. And that was kind of the time where I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to go for it. And so I did. Great. Yeah. My like aha moment was, well, one, I've always just had like a very healthy ego. So I always assumed that it, I could do it. Um, but I just distinctly remember seeing the national tour of Spring Awakening. Mm. And that screams Ryan Andrews. Yeah, I was like a junior, maybe. And you were like, God, my parents don't understand me. They don't get me, even though they're like, totally Ryan, chill. we get you. <laughs> but I remember watching it and being like, I could do that now. And not in a like, judgment of anybody performing on the stage, but just... But you could see yourself there. Yeah, that's yeah. important. I, I remember uh, in college going to see The Mystery of Edwin Drood on Broadway. And I was like, this, I could be in this. This is like the show. I'm funny. I have more of a classically trained voice. Like this is the one that I can do. And I mean, Stephanie J. Block. Oh my gosh. I mean, <laughs> we could do a whole podcast just on my love for Stephanie J. Block alone. And she honestly deserves it. She does. So maybe we'll circle back. Maybe we'll circle back. So you go to this governor's school. Mm -hmm. You decide this is what I'm going to do. And mm -hmm. you go through the college audition process and end up at Missouri State. Yeah, so I, I kind of, I think this is a relatively important part of my journey, um, of my journey. A big, it'll be a few chapters of my memoir, mm, um, yes. is once I decided I wanted to do it, I didn't, I didn't know how. I had no idea. I didn't know what the top schools were. I didn't know anything. And this was before uh, this was before listicles. This was before you could search top musical th theater programs and come up with a list of 10 for each state. Uh -huh. Like that wasn't a thing. The way you found stuff at this point was chat rooms, right? It was those like uh, message boards where yeah. parents would go on and talk about it. And I just like didn't know it existed. I didn't know that there were like 30 Broadway theaters that had a Broadway show at all times because I had never been to New York. Um, you know, my understanding of the world was very limited. And at my school, uh, my choir teacher was the one, I did musicals in choir, and she was the one who really was uh, where I succeeded the most. And she left after my junior year. And I got to senior year, and uh, the theater teacher at my school had always been horrible. She was just the meanest person oh, uh, no. who's existed. I remember one day, the first day of a rehearsal process for a show, her just screaming at all of us in the cast. And me, being 17 years old and going, what do you have to yell at us about on the first day of rehearsal. Right. And so because of that, I had kind of lost the person that I knew best, didn't have the theater teacher, and 
so I was kind of on my own. And so I zeroed in on Missouri State because when I lived in Springfield growing up, that's where my dad worked. Okay. And knew they had a solid program. They had had a few people go to Broadway. And so I was like, great, this will work for me. Um, and so I didn't audition anywhere else, uh, oh. mostly because I didn't know. There were some local places like Belmont has a good musical theater program, but it's also $30,000 a year. And I knew, um, sorry if you can hear that siren going by in New York City. New York City. I knew as a person who, again, had a 2.9 GPA, uh, 26 on my ACT, and nothing ever interesting that had happened to me or my family that I wasn't going to get enough scholarship money to go to that kind of a school. And so Missouri State, I could get in-state tuition. It was like $8,000 a year. So I auditioned there and ended up not getting in the first time and was just devastated. Yeah. And my new choir teacher, John McDonald, who is like still a good friend of mine, uh, he had just graduated college and this was his first job. So he was younger than some of my, than one of my sisters. Um, so I, I clicked well with him and he came up to me and he was like, Hey, you really need, you need to go there, take all of the like intro to theater classes, meet all the professors, talk to them about what you need to improve on and re-audition. You're good enough. You can make it. You need to go do that. And that was the first time that someone who I, I felt like really understood the industry in some level showed real confidence in me. And so I did it and I went to school and first semester took all those classes and there was a fall audition for transfer students. So I auditioned at that one and I ended up getting in and then was in the BFA musical theater program. You keep mentioning how you had a low GPA and I just find that so interesting because you're a very hard work. I mean, you just described a very hard process. Yeah. I mean, the thing for me is that I am a hard worker, but I am very externally motivated. Um, I have a really hard time doing things just on my behalf. And so because of that, by sophomore year, when I said, well, I'm not going to do anything for a career that needs math, so I'm just not going to do my math homework. That made complete sense to me. And I, you know, I was president of like five organizations my senior year uh, because I cared about other people and I cared about doing things to make the school better and to help people. So the only form of rebellion that I really showed growing up was that I just didn't do my homework. And that ended up meaning that I would pull C's in my, uh, you know, math and science classes so it just kind of brought everything down. Ah, okay. So you go to school, you get the BFA, you move to New York, you have relative success as an actor, and then you make a career change in quite a big way that I think pulls into that caring for others that you just previously mentioned. What was what was that like, especially making a change that a lot of artists are making currently due to a pandemic, but you got to do on your own terms? Yeah, you know, I graduated and for about two and a half years, did shows around the country, never anything all that big, but was getting cast um, in non-ec work. 
And I got to the point where if I had an audition coming up for, <laughs> I'll tell you the specific one, Jersey Boys, the musical off-Broadway, right? When Jersey Boys came back. And, uh, you know, I went to the audition and I was like, oh, I'll take my guitar because one of the uh, tracks calls for a guitarist and I'll show him I can play and blah, blah, blah. And I just had a bad audition and I had like a panic attack about it. And it had gotten to the point where every time I would have an audition not go well or I would not get cast in a role that I thought I should have, I would just kind of turn that into you're not good enough, you can't make it, you suck, right? And when I finally realized that my mental health was suffering so strongly um, that I was having panic attacks over this, I realized that I was like, look, performing you love and you're good at. And uh, if you could only be on stage performing for an audience every day, the rest of your life, that'd be great. But unfortunately, the actor life, that is 0.00001% of actors. For the majority, you are auditioning for nine months and performing for a month and a half, right? And that isn't the life that does well for me. And so for my own health, I was like, I need to, I need to do something else. And maybe at some point I'll decide that I want to come back to the theater and do it again or get involved in a different capacity, but um, this isn't good for me. And so I then just kind of racked my brain of like, well, if you're not doing this, what can you do? And my, my family has always been very politically and like community, community-ively, that's not a word, but very active in the community and very active politically. There's that 2.6 GPA coming. There out. she is. <laughs> um, it was a 2.9. Oh, sorry. Let's 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 pump the brakes. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I was like, I've always been really interested in that stuff and good with that stuff. I know that I'm creative and good with my words and all of that. So like, let's try and find a communications gig in the nonprofit world. One of my friends was working in the nonprofit sector. And she was like, oh, hey, I know someone who is looking for a communications person. You should apply. And so I applied for it, ended up getting that one. And I have now worked in nonprofit for like a little over two years. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. So I have to ask you the question. Okay. So we've talked about your upbringing. We've talked about school. We've talked about what you're currently doing. And to me, I think that you are a very driven and passionate human who uh, is just like heavily in involved in what makes the fabric of like our society work. And I just uh, want to ask you, why are you like this? <sighs> okay. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think it's a few things. My parents growing up were... I wouldn't say liberal. Um, I think that's too easy to like put them in a specific box. I think that they were like really open-minded and loving and cared about their community. And I think because of those things, now that has a more liberal name tag to it. But, you know, I remember being in middle school and us 
it, it was the 2004 election with Bush and Kerry. And our teacher had asked us to go home and fill out one of those, like, which candidate would you support things? And I got to a question about abortion. And I remember asking my mom, I was like, oh, is this something that we are for or against? And she was like, I don't know. Are you for or against it? And it was that ability of them allowing me to form my own opinions but giving me the facts, you know, like we then had a conversation about the pros and cons of it that I think really helped me to be able to develop my own thoughts and, and whatnot. My two older sisters are both like extremely driven. One of them is the chief of staff for a startup in Arizona. The other one does uh, lobbying for the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, in Montgomery, Alabama. And they both are just like, fucking go-getters. I hope I can say fucking on this podcast. Go for it. I figured this was for the adults. Um, (laughs) They're just go-getters and they are really smart, really driven. And I think that I just learned growing up that I didn't have a, there wasn't another option. Um, That that's, that was the standard. That was kind of the bar for entry. And then that mixed in with me growing up in an area where I thought incredibly differently than everyone around me really made me, force me to sure up and decide on my ideals and what I believed in, my values, from a pretty young age. You know, when you're 15 and you say, oh, I like Barack Obama. And some one of your friend's parents is like, why? He's the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be able to say why if you actually want to say you believe that. So then you go and do the research and you're like, oh, well, I, be- I like him because of the X, Y, Z. And so I think that those things gave me the ability to really believe in the things that I believe in. And then also, you know, just like really care about my community. And then otherwise, I would say it is my uh, idiosyncrasies of needing attention and um, needing approval of other people and being so externally driven that, you know, that can seem like a positive things. But in a lot of ways, it's actually very negative on my like day to day life. But because of that, I looked for ways that I could help people around me because that's what pushes me through the world. It's it's interesting because there's the second part of having an uh, I guess political ideal that you touched on that I think on both sides of the coin a lot of people um, forget and it's I like this person or this policy and here are the reasons why yeah I think especially I mean we could talk about the goods and the evils of social media all day long, but it definitely allows people to just have headline opinions. I think that from a young age, you knowing that you had to be able to say why you have these ideals from a factual and concrete place definitely helped your development as a politically minded human. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, I, I, we see it, in New York, and I would bet in Oregon as well, from the opposite side mm-hmm. of when we meet a Republican, everyone is like, why? Well, why are you like, like, I, they would say they believe something. You're like, well, why? What do you need that for? And it gets pushy, right? And I, I understand 
that. Um, but me growing up, it was towards me. And so, you know, when I would say why I thought guns were dangerous or that gay people should be married or, you know, whatever it was, I had to be able to like go into the policy section of the law, right? To say, oh, well, if we do this thing, it affects that. And that is why this is helpful. And they would go, oh, but what about this? And I would have to already have that argument prepared, you know? But I, you're, you know, the social media thing is right. I, I get frustrated often, even with the left, on biting on these things that don't matter or are wrong, like factually incorrect. Because I'm like, look, it, it doesn't help anything if we're also spewing just dumb stuff. Right. Right? Like, if we're also putting out things that aren't real and aren't true, that's not helpful. What's helpful is you, you doing just 30 seconds more thought on this and deciding whether or not it's worthwhile to post it and then going from there, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think, especially this year with, I don't know, just pick a topic. Um, <laughs> we've all had time to be inside and we have time to look into it and i think that's had a a positive effect on a lot of people our age yeah well this is this is actually something interesting to me that happened to me this year is when covid hit new york city i have asthma and at the time no one knew anything we were very concerned and so me and my family and my wife talked and decided that it would be best if Kelly, my wife, and I went down to stay with my sister in Alabama for a while until things kind of settled down. And one of the first conversations we had in the first week or two was about abolition. And she works a lot in criminal justice and prison reform. And you know, she brought up that one of her friends was an abolitionist. I was like, okay, can you explain this to me? Because I've heard this before, but how, how does abolition of police and prisons work in today's age? And so we had this whole talk about abolition and defunding the police and whatnot. And then like a month later was when George Floyd was murdered. And it was really interesting already having these tools ready to talk about this thing that then became, you know, the conversation happening in the country. Yeah. Um, it was just like a really weird set of circumstances to kind of follow. Well, and it's important to, as we like continue to discuss defunding the police and abolition and to know that these aren't new conversations. And I think that's another thing that social media has done is it's created this like kind of vacuum where for some people, myself included, I'm relatively new to the discussion. And there are people who are experts on this field who can show you facts and whether or not you want to digest them or not is up to you, but have been researching this and doing the work on this forever. And it's important to look into that, to ask questions, to not assume that you are the expert because you saw a hashtag. Yeah, well, you know, like all of a sudden people were like, oh, have you heard about this Angela Davis person? And it and turns out, yeah, well, Angela Davis has already been around. She did her thing and got framed by the government. Like she has been through it. Right. 
you know, and not to say that I knew everything about her before this moment, but you're right. You know, there are people doing this stuff and who are experts. You have to go, you have to be willing to be curious and look for knowledge. Uh, you can't just expect it to come to you. And I think that a an issue in social media is that we just all kind of sit around and wait for the knowledge to come to us. And that creates issues. And I think that for something like abolition or defunding the police, where it is extremely nuanced and it needs air to breathe, you know, like it's not, it can't, doesn't fit in a tweet. You cannot explain it in a succinct way with that little text. And that doesn't make it any less of a good policy to enact. You know, things can be complicated and be the right choice. Absolutely. You know, I think that we try and, you know, do all this stuff over social media, do hashtags, and then Barack Obama, who we loved in 2008, comes out and says that it's too complicated and people should move on. And it's like, yo, B, you're not really helping. Like, maybe you should, like, take a chill pill. (laughs) Maybe allow the people who have been doing this speak. I don't know. Yeah, in 2014, people didn't believe in Black Lives Matter. And then six years later... LeBron James is wearing shirts in the NBA finals that say Black Lives Matter, you know, like, unfortunately, in our country, it takes a lot of discussion on the like, massive public scale. But just because it makes white people uncomfortable at the beginning doesn't mean it's not a conversation that should be happening. And continuing to push it and push it. Once you've done that for long enough, people actually at some point have a conversation where they actually listen to the points and then they go, oh, saying Black Lives Matter doesn't mean that all lives don't matter. I get it now. Right. Just in the way of saying, oh, defunding the police doesn't necessarily mean that tomorrow I don't want a police department. It means that I that these funds could be better used if they were put into other parts of the government, such as health and human services and youth programs and blah, 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 blah. It's like, just because you're seeing the flower now doesn't mean that it doesn't have like deep roots in the idea. Oh my God, Ryan, you are a wordsmith. You are smithing the words for these listeners. You know, I've been known to write a poem or two in my youth. Oh my gosh, that was so angsty. I'm so into it. <laughs> uh, so as we are nearing our, uh, our end here, um, I like to ask all of my guests, do you have any questions for me? I do have some questions for you. I have some like more serious questions and then some fun questions. So I'll start with the more serious ones and then move on from there. So I know that one thing that you and I have talked about in the past is our history with mental health issues. And I think that this is a prevalent thing that a lot of people just don't talk about. And so I thought it could be interesting for us to kind of touch on. So my first question would be, when did you first realize that you had that something was wrong and that you had some mental health problems? Um, I think the first time I realized that it was something a little broken in me was probably when I went to college and not because college was like hard or bad or anything, but it was a huge change in my norm. And I could see people joyfully leaping out into independence. And for me, I was acutely aware that I was thousands of miles away from everybody that I knew (laughs) and was like, I don't know, am I good at making friends? I don't know. 
I haven't had to do, I've always had a friend since kindergarten. Shout out Trevor Hennigan. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> um, and that was the first time that I had the like, I'm doing things that are, yes, fun. And I can see that they are fun. But for some reason, my body is not allowing me to accept this as anything happy. Yeah. Is Do you feel that you have more of like the depression side than like the anxiety side? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think it sparks from depression and then you get anxious about being depressed. Yeah. And then it's like the snail, the snail, (laughs) the snake eats its tail. Yeah. For me, it's all like I get so anxious about somebody disliking me or something going wrong that reinforces a narrative that I have about myself that I'm not a good person or whatever. And I spiral and spiral and get so anxious that I get depressed. You know, they're hand in hand, but it just depends on which way you come from. Yeah, where you start from it. And I've always had just like an insane uh, sense of self. So for me, yeah, I think it definitely sparks from, okay, I'm very sad. And now I'm just like confused and anxious about how long this is going to last. I have friends that are so not self-aware And let me tell you, I wish that every night I didn't think about every way I've jaded someone (laughs) across my entire life. But you know what? Can't Can't do do it. it. Um, So the other question, before we get into the more fun fun questions, um, I found with my kind of journey that something that's often misunderstood is that healing mental health issues isn't linear. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, I really thought when I started going to therapy finally that I would go and the next day I'd be a little happier and then the next day I'd be a little happier and that would just happen exponentially until I was just the happiest little boy that's ever lived. Mm. Um, And that's not the case. You know, I'll have a breakthrough in therapy and feel really good and then a week later I will be spiraling over something. So I'm interested in how you kind of see your journey, you know, have you had any setbacks? How do you think about things when you feel like you're having a setback? All that kind of stuff. Yeah, so my journey, I think, is a little different than other, I mean, of course, it's different than other people. I'm an individual and everyone's story is different. Um, but my family has always been very open and honest about any mental health issues that have been going on in their lives. So for me, I grew up in a space where taking any sort of medication you need or doing therapy wasn't a foreign idea. However, once I had that that first bout of depression going to school, the go-to for me was to get on some sort of medication. So from there through my 20s till I was like 26, 27, I wasn't doing work to make anything better. I often equated my depression as um, the same thing as like having a cold. I was always like, yeah, it's something that I have. It'll always be there. And I, once a month, will have a very, very hard day. And I had just decided that that was how my life would go. It'll flare up, but then I'll forget about it. Right. And I was always like, well, there are people who have things worse than me. And if I only have a monthly flare-up, then cool, so be it. Yep. But then, kind of famously in my life and in my world, around the summer when I was 27, 
had a pretty big mental break that had some ramifications on my life. And I was able to take the time to start doing the therapy healing, which for me ended up being exponentially better than any reliance on a medicine, which is just for me and my body. But actually doing the work and actually, it, it's not like having a cold where you just kind of have sniffles for 10 days. It's uh, if you just let it fester, and in my case, uh, try to drink through it or keep pushing through it, you will hit a wall um, that won't let you continue with that way. So for me, therapy ended up being the most helpful way to find ways to fix things. So it's not even once a month, you know? I totally hear that. You know, I convinced myself for the longest time that same thing, you know, people have it worse, all that kind of stuff. And I started going to therapy for a year and then was still having pretty strong panic attacks and whatnot. And then finally started taking Lexapro. And that was enough to help get me to the point where I just, I could get my head above water. You know, like I didn't feel like I was constantly trying to not drown. And that, you know, kind of helped push me over the edge where my therapy, I could then actually start feeling the changes and, you know, able to address things without it tearing me apart completely. But also for those listening, all of this to say, I think there's a common thread that I want to make sure that, you know, I don't think Ryan and I believe, I don't, I'm sure Ryan doesn't, is that like, you should just go to therapy where a lot of people can't get therapy because of, you know, issues with insurance and, and things like that. And right. the activist kind of side of me is like, and that's why when we have a president and the U.S. House of Representatives for two years, you need, if this is something you believe in, talk with your elected officials about how to make mental health um, medicine and therapy and whatnot more accessible to people. Um, but also, you know, there are a lot of free or sliding scale options out there. And so, you know, if you need those, go look for them. You can Google them, you know, sliding scale therapy and they will pop up. So don't think that you can't do anything. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there's no way after this year that anybody um, is getting out of this without the need of any sort of mental health help. We all need it at this point. And it's difficult, but there are some options. So see see what you can find if you feel like you need it. Don't let the other people have it worse stop you from fixing your own because... Everybody's facing their own battle. Absolutely. Amen. So now the very important questions mm. that I have for you. Um, and these we can kind of... You can give as much detail as you want. I know it's kind of sensitive and secretive. <laughs> okay. um, so I don't want you to feel like you have to divulge too much, but... When did you first realize that you were a jellical cat? <laughs> um, the first time I realized I was a jellical cat, I actually saw my best friend Trevor Hennigan in a production of Cats. And who? Hold on, hold on, hold on. Who was Trevor? Trevor was Griddlebone. Mm, um, he didn't. Not what I thought. He didn't make it to the jellical ball. He was uh, um, one of three cats that sang and left. It's it's like in a chorus line, the ones who get cut at the beginning. Absolutely. And I think Griddlebone is uh, traditionally cast uh, female presenting. So <laughs> sorry, Jeff. They're all they're all cats in their own right. But yeah, that was the first time I was a jellical, a jellical cat. 
can you tell us your three cat names? Oh yes. Well, you have your your name that everybody knows, which mm-hmm. is um, Ryan. Ryan. And then you have your um, family name, which I guess is Andrews. Um, But then you have your secret name that only you and the Jellicle Moon know. (laughs) So you probably can't divulge that to us. I can't share that to the public. I thought I might be able to trick you into it. Yeah, no. Um, That's fine. So uh, what type of cat are you? For instance, Rum Tum Tugger, obviously Mm -hmm. a curious cat. Absolutely. Um, I have to identify with Jenny Any Dots, I believe. Mm. Um, I like the idea of presenting lazy and then secretly having a bunch of energy. It's like the ultimate con. Yeah, if if it was like Ginny and Edots is a giggly cat, I would say that's you. Yeah, absolutely. But I just really love the idea that she has convinced her entire family that she is so lazy that they have to pamper her. But then when they leave, she's like, I can tap, I can tap dance. <laughs> Wait, no, I can tap. I promise. I promise. And, and my last question, mm. um, I know you've probably been planning this for years, but when, not if, when you audition for the Jellicle Ball, Absolutely. what will you wear and what will your audition be? Ooh, okay. For instance, you know, Skimble Shanks, he does the tapping on the railway. He wears the overalls like a true cat daddy, all of that. What would your audition and outfit be? Well, my favorite... Uh costuming piece in the cat's world is when the kittens wear other animal prints <laughs> when it, they've when they've slayed an animal yeah. and put on its skin so i think i would definitely uh be wearing a mix match of different patterns and different furs mm-hmm. um and i'd probably present as a fashion cat because of that Ooh, yeah. fashion cat just to get up to that to that heavy side layer so so for your audition, you just like strut? I just strut around and hope yeah. that somebody looks at me. And you could do those like cute, like I'm going to sing. Oh, actually, I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to keep strutting because I'm hot. And you just like point at notes, but you don't actually sing them so people can hear it. Da, 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 da. Hmm. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Very that. I love that. <laughs> That's my question. That's what I had. Oh, I love that. Well, Carl, this has been <laughs> delightful. Um, it has. Where can the children find you? Oh my gosh, you can follow me on just about anything because I'm not creative at Carl T.K. Glenn. Uh, I have two middle names. Um, so C-A-R-L-T-K Glenn. I'm most active on Twitter. If you want some uh, bad jokes and liberal propaganda, follow me on the Twitter. Absolutely. Well, thank you again. And uh, we'll talk to you later. Love you. Love you. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started.